When I was growing up, the, uh, well, I guess I'm still kind of growing up, but earlier, I used to uh, listen to a lot of rock music, and they always, sound, all the guys, they, they had these really gritty voices, like Doug's, like a lot of edge. And, uh, man, I'm so jealous. Like, Doug, you have an amazing voice. And for some reason, God gave me a voice that sounds like a girl. So, and you've probably noticed that when we've sung together <laughs> the last couple of years. Right, right. Doug needs a female counterpart. Um, Aaron and I, we talk a lot as we're uh, getting ready. What, we're three weeks, right? Four, three weeks? It's like it's coming right up. Yes. Um, and we talk about all, like a whole, just, I mean, we talk about a lot of different stuff. Uh, we talk about um, what color the flower should be. We talk about what color my suit should be. We talk about um, what presents we need to get from Crate and Barrel. We talk about, we just talk, I mean, everything. It's like everything under the sun is free game. Um, and occasionally, we even talk about um, God and church and stuff. And I was talking about our, uh, my sermon with her, and she said, uh, well, I called it, you know, a theology of mission. And, and she was like, well, what do you mean by theology? And this made me think back to a conversation that I'd had. I, I participate in this group up at school. And we, it's all these, all these, basically, people who are working towards their PhDs and professors. And just talking about different issues of faith and life. And at one point, one of the professors asked all these PhD candidates in theology. He said, well, what's your definition of theology? And there was a whole lot of, like... Oh, well, you know, what we're, what we're doing, right, here. And that was pretty much the, and, and the professor was like, well, okay, we need to rethink what we're doing here. Um, there's there's a, a tradition, the traditional definition of theology is a faith-seeking understanding. It's people, people of faith trying to make sense of it all trying to fit it all together. We, we experience all these things in life. We experience good things and bad things. We see these headlines that we don't understand. We hear amazing stories. We hear terrible stories. We are, we are given um, holy scriptures that, that narrate also sometimes very confusing stories to us, uh, telling us all these different things. Theology is where we as a people, believers, try and make sense of it all. More recently, a, new, a newer definition um, that I, I kind of like is we Christians critically reflecting on what we do. We, Coast Bible Church, reflecting, taking a, step, taking a, a second, stepping back, and thinking about what we do. So, for example, we could have theology about prayer. We'd think, why do we pray and how do we pray? We could step back and think about worship. It's like, why do we worship? How do we worship? <laughs> Very well today. Thank you, guys. It was awesome. We, we could have a theology of life, of death, of heaven and hell. Anything that relates to how we act as a community, we can step back for a second and think about it and try to understand it and try to put it together. And today, I'd like to do that with missions a little bit. I'd like us to step back and actually step into 
uh, Acts chapter 2, and see what is going on there. See if we can reflect, think critically about what mission means for, in this case, Peter and the early church. And then maybe appropriate that for us here as we kick off our missions conference, as we look forward to next week, where we'll be spending time with our missionaries, eating with them, praying for them, with them, worshiping with them. I would like it if we could reflect today and use that as a launch pad into next week where we can begin doing again. So, I, I call this a theology of mission. That's because, unfortunately, I wish that I could tell you that there's only one. But it turns out that you can actually make a living um, writing books about theologies of mission. And apparently people buy them because there's, and, and students go to, there's tons of theologies of mission. Theologies of mission have gone back all the way to St. Augustine. There's, we have stories in the Bible that are about mission and about people doing missions. We sometimes don't even agree on what mission is. So today we're just going to do a theology of mission. Just one. It's going to give us something to think about. Something to, something to, to push us forward. Just one. A theology. And, and more than that, I want to say, I want to suggest to you that right now, Every person here has a theology of mission, whether you know it or not. Everybody here has some preconceived notions about what it, why we do what we do and what it is that we're supposed to be doing in the world, outside of these walls. For some of us, that means uh, proclaiming a particular story. For some of us, that means doing a particular thing or a type of thing. I think, um, oh, by the way, Bringing it back. For those of you who remember Pastor Arch, Diet Coke. I, I can't stand Diet Coke, but I'm beginning to get a taste for it. Uh-oh, it means I'm getting old. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, I think typically in American history, there's, there's three different types of, of a theology mission. I've given them my own names. The first one, which I think is really familiar to most very conservative, verging on fundamentalist churches, and that is the all-must-hear theology of mission. It's the belief that, based on the idea that there's going to be a rapture, that Jesus is going to come back and bring all people, all Christians, with him into the air, based on that belief, there is also an understanding that in order for that to happen, in order for Jesus to come back, every nation, every people group has to have heard the good news of the gospel. That God will not bring Jesus back, will not send us back, until everybody has heard. So in the beginning of the uh, 20th century, in the early 1900s, uh, there was actually a, a movement, I think it was called the, the, uh, the Whole World Hears in One Generation. And it was young Christians, actually beginning at Biola. Biola um, was a huge, huge proponent of this. Young Christians were, were sent out into the world, the idea being that in one generation, 20 years, that everyone would have heard, and then the, the, the veil would be pulled back and, and, God, and God could send Jesus back to us. In a sense, in some cases, there was actually talk of hurrying up the rapture, like sort of forcing God's hand. Um, I think that's a little bit extreme, and I, I cer certainly think that when Neil was talking, uh, when Jesus tells us, you know, no one knows the hour, then we should take that very seriously. But still, this idea that, that, that God's not going to pour out judgment until everyone's had a chance to hear. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we go out. That's why people have sacrificed life, have sacrificed health, to go out and do God's works that everyone's got a shot. 
Another one, another theology of mission that you've probably heard about is the social gospel. Uh, began in the 19th century with a guy named Walter Rauschenbusch in New York. Um, this was Walter Rauschenbusch and a, and a number of other uh, more what we would call today liberal Christians had, had lost faith, had lost a lot of confidence in God's movement and God's work in the world. And when they read back on the stories of Jesus, they began to understand that what God was actually calling us to do was to continue Jesus' work. That Jesus was in the work, in the business of building up the kingdom of heaven, and then right as he was about to finish it up, he was crucified. And so proponents of the social gospel say, we as Christians are called to step into Jesus' work, continue it, and literally bring the kingdom of God to earth. Uh, in conservative churches, we typically, um, we typically shy away from this kind of theology. Um, although it has, it, has a lot to offer, it has a lot to recommend it. It's a very engaged, very, uh, some of the most important social movements in, in American history, including abolition and child labor laws, were really supported by the social gospel movement. Um, things that I, I hope that we all are very proud of as, as part of our Christian heritage. I think more recently, um, in response to some of the inadequacies in both of these, uh, the first two theologies of mission, I think there's been what I like to call the what would Jesus do theology of mission. Have you guys... J- Doug, do you, have a, do you have it with you? Do you have your bracelet? Oh. Didn't you use uh, some of the, uh, the, the WWJD bracelet? What would Jesus do? The idea is, um, what, what our job as Christians is, is to look back um, into the life of Jesus and understand who Jesus was in a very clear, very real way. And then, when we're faced with circumstances in our daily life and in our church life and in our political and religious life, we think, what would Jesus do? And based on the stories that we have of him, we project into our context a sort of an ethic about what we ought to be doing. And of course, what happens when you read the New Testament is you find Jesus doing a whole lot of healing, a whole lot of casting out of demons, of restoring people to community. You find Jesus doing a lot of sort of earth-shaking political stuff. And so the What Would Jesus Do movement incorporates this real, genuine, sincere faith in Jesus with a lot of the social gospel elements that, that were to continue Jesus' work in the here and now. And I think most of us here, most, I would say, contemporary evangelical churches in some form or another adopt one, one of these or some amalgam of all of them. Now, there's some weaknesses and some strengths to, all, to each of these ways of approaching. And I, number one, do not want to negate the value of any of them. I think they're all really valuable um, theologies. I think they're very good. I think that we should be concerned that everyone has a chance to hear the good news. That's important. And I don't think that God is going to end the world until everyone's had, an, had a chance to respond to his good news. On the other hand, I do think that the kingdom of, of, of God hasn't come in fullness yet. We don't see it yet. We don't see total justice. We don't see total peace. And we should be people who are promoting those things, who are on the side of the, of the underprivileged, on the side of justice, on the side of the poor. And more than that, gosh, I hope we're people who want to be like Jesus. I hope that characterizes each person here, that we 
do read the stories of Jesus and we do want to become like him. But our concern today, our concern today is with Peter's theology of mission in Acts 2. We're going to read through Acts 2 and we're going to take a look at what Peter, how Peter's thinking, what Peter's up to. Kind of step into Peter's shoes a little bit, if we can, and see where that takes us. Before we do, I have to make a confession. Another thing that I told Aaron, Peter is not my favorite Bible character. Um, I don't know. I think there's a, so we get certain affinities for certain characters uh, in, in Scripture. I am not a fan of Peter. Peter is impulsive, loudmouthed, and opinionated. And, I mean, I just don't relate to that at all. And so, I just have a hard time kind of getting a bead on where Peter's at. So, this is tough for me. It's tough for me to step into the shoes of, the, of this totally different person. I'm used to, I, I consider myself more, I relate a lot to Jesus. You know, patient, kind, compassionate. Um, that's really more where I'm comfortable. But for today, we're going to step into Peter's shoes. So, uh, actually, if you pull out your, your pew Bible, we're going to read it. It's on page 575 in your pew Bible. I'm sorry. Okay, I know. In, in, in church, it's like, it's like it's just an intro until you open, out your, open up your Bibles. I hope you don't feel that way. That wasn't an intro. That was important. Okay? Laura, is that all right? Okay, good. All right, so uh, pull out your Bibles, page 575. This is uh, Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read like 40 verses, so. But I won't explain all of them. All right. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, and you could say, and women, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans, read hicks, rubes, idiots? And, and how is it that we, educated probably rich and powerful? How is it that we here, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They're all amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, it's still the morning. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
And it shall come to pass in those last days, says God. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men see visions. Your old men dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun turned into darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Men and women of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, crucified and put to death. whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have been known to me in the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and women, brothers and sisters, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to his flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. His flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, Till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We're going to finish that up a little bit later. I know it was long, sorry. Peter. Peter has seen a lot. Peter has seen way more than he knows what to do with. Before this uh, happens, Peter and the other disciples and about 150 witnesses of the resurrection are all together in the upper room where Passover was held. And they're confused. They're like, okay. Because Jesus comes back from the dead and they're like, yes! It's kingdom time. He's, he, look, we can't, he can't be stopped by death. Who better to lead the army, to take over, to clean out all the religious and, and political corruption, get rid of the Romans, what are they going to do, kill him? <laughs> and not only that, but he has these, these, these new and different powers. He can appear in our midst, he can be in different places, and yet he still eats and drinks with us. We're unstoppable. And they ask him, is this the hour, Lord? 
And Jesus responds and says, just wait. I want you just to wait. Because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And then everything is going to work out. And then Jesus is taken up into heaven and gone. And Peter is like, What? Really? This is the plan? I mean, okay, 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 alright. I, I didn't buy it when Jesus went to be crucified. I thought, I thought that was crazy. But then, okay, okay, okay. Raised from the dead. Alright, Lord, your ways are not my ways. I, that's amazing. Okay, I get it. I get it. But the, he just left. The Holy Spirit? What's this? They have stories of, 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 the, of the Spirit of God descending and being with various people in the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit coming and being everywhere amongst everyone. What? Confused, at a loss, Peter and the rest of the disciples commit themselves to prayer, and they just decide to wait. All right, Jesus says wait. We'll wait. And then the Feast of Pentecost comes. That's, um, that's actually what it sounded like right there. I did a little research, figured that out for you guys. There's this huge noise. And everyone starts speaking in different languages. And some people think they're drunk. And Peter's sitting there, and he's speaking in, I don't know, Phrygian, Cappadocian, Egyptian. Take your pick. And he stops. And bing! The lights go on. And then, because he's Peter, and because he's not like me, he starts yelling at everybody. He's like, you! Terrible! Look what you did! You killed the Christ! And there's people like, ah. And he, he starts going off, right? This, uh, this is probably, this, this uh, speech that we have from Peter is probably much shorter. I can imagine Peter going for two hours just laying into these people. Like, just their sins and all the stuff they've done. Just, da, 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 you terrible, bad, bad, bad. And finally, the, some of the disciples on the side are like, yeah, give it to them. And then there's, there's other disciples on the other side that are like, let him, okay, well, all right, we'll just wait. And out in front of them, all these people are just getting obliterated. They, they don't understand, like, okay, the, we, we, the Messiah came and we killed him? Oh, man, really missed the boat on that one. And so... Believing what he's saying, believing that Jesus has come back, Jesus the miracle worker whom they have heard about. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and women, brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Actually, it was probably more like, ah, what what should we do? And Peter's like, uh, 
and he stops, bing, light goes on, and I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He says, when God invades, everything changes. When God steps in to your life, everything gets flipped upside down. When God steps in, when God shows up, everything changes. Peter said to them, repent. Change your life. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, for remission of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit like us. The promise is to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, with many more words, another two hours, Ah! Be saved from this perverse generation. Get out of this sick and twisted culture. God showed up, guys. Everything's changing. All the stuff that we thought, that, that, that it's, it's just for the Jews, that it's just about these feasts, these, these, these Passovers, that it's, it's all got to be in Hebrew, that it's, it's just this, it's just that. Stop. It's all getting flipped upside down. Everything changes. Change your life. Get in sync with the new reality, the real reality. Everything has changed. And we couldn't see it. We couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. And then God showed it to me. And Jesus, I couldn't imagine what the world was like until Jesus himself showed up and made it real. Which brings us to Peter's theology of mission in Acts chapter 2. God has shown up. Everything has changed. Live like it. For starters, in Acts 2, it's, it's God's call is going out everywhere. It's not just located here with us. It's who knows who God's going to call. But get excited because it's going to be wild. Now, for a first century Jew, that's, that's pretty radical. For us, it's, I mean, honestly, I mean, let's just be honest. It's not that radical for us. I think we, we've lived in, in that reality for a long time. We do believe this. I mean, you look at our, our missions here at Coast, we go everywhere. Like Africa, and Haiti, and Mexico, and, and even our backyard at, at, at Camp Allendale. Prisoners. I mean, you name it, we believe that the call of God goes there. This isn't that surprising to us. But to them, it was like it was like everything they thought about the world was changed, flipped upside down.
Which brings us to the question. Do we agree? When we think about the world, how do we see it? I recently have been thinking a lot about the weather. Not because it was raining today, just because, I don't know, weather forecasts blow my mind. Do you guys have a favorite weather forecast? Oh, yeah. I knew that. was good. Um, in, uh, at Fuller, our favorite was uh, Jackie on Channel 9. <laughs> anyway, what's so interesting about weather forecasts, and you think about it, it's like, they never mention God. Right? It's, it's always, there's, sorry. We have a high pressure front coming in from the north, and you may see some more precipitation during that. That's what you get. You never get, you never get, Oh, and uh, God, angry with the sins of men, has declared that a hurricane is going to come and realize... You don't get that, right? And thank goodness, because if they said that, I'd be like, no. But I got to thinking about it. The more I watch these weather reports, the more I start to think that God's not doing anything. I don't need God. I've got high pressure fronts. I've got low pressure fronts. I've got precipitation, 58% chance. I mean, it's great. What do I need God for? Or, for that matter, just the news in general. You know? It's like, think about this, when we, or, or movies. When you watch a movie, and there's a story about, I don't know, a, a murderer, right? It always turns out at the end that this murderer was, you know, abuses a child, or something like that. That there's a, there's a good explanation, a good scientific explanation for how this stuff all works. And if we could just figure it all out and get the math just right, everything would be fine. And you know something? I gotta say, I'm sympathetic to that. But Peter's telling me, God broke in. He showed up. And everything's different now. God broke in. And your high pressure fronts and your low pressure fronts and your psychological explanations for everything aren't enough anymore. The way you're thinking and the way you're living is not in tune with the way things are. I was talking to Neil... Uh, couple weeks ago, and, and he just brought up, you know, angels and demons. He was like, what would it be like if we could pull back the veil from our eyes, right? What would we see? And he, and he just painted, painted this picture of, of cosmic warfare that we just have no access to right now. And you know something? He's right. God broke in. Everything's different now. And that means a lot of stuff. It means repent, turn around, Change your life and get in tune with the real reality. Wait, was it supposed to be about missions? I'm sorry. I apologize. I got 
I got off there. Uh, missions. How does missions fit into this? Let's have a theology. Let's put it all together. We're faithful, seeking understanding. This is what it means. It means that the regular run of life in Southern California is demonic. It means that the real reality is that we are supposed to constantly be challenging everything and everybody who seeks the side of Satan against the side of God. That means that we are to be involved politically and religiously in every way that we can be to call out for God, to take the side of God against injustice, against anything and everything that seeks to overcome it. It means that the Holy Spirit is in this community, and as we work together and as we share our lives together, the Holy Spirit will guide us towards a new reality. And our lives are going to change, and it's going to be scary, and no one's going to like it that much until we get where we're going, and we're going to look back and say, wow, that wasn't how I would have done things, but good call. It means that we are supposed to look at every child that's oppressed in another country, in Haiti, in Africa, wherever. And we're not to say, that's a real tragedy. Look at what global capitalism or socialism or tyranny has done. No. We're to look at those lives and say, that is God's opportunity for us to take part. For us to be a part of the redemption process. To be a part of the real world. God broke in. Everything's changed. Let us live like it. God broke in. Everything has changed. Let's live like it. Third time's a charm. God broke in. Everything's changed. Let's live like it. That's a theology of missions. It's not the be-all, end-all of mission theology. It's a place for our conversation to start. Now, next week, 29th, let's start living like it. You're going to have an opportunity at every table to somehow be involved in a missionary that our church supports. You're going to have an opportunity to get involved, to be hands-on, Maybe that's go to Haiti with us in the summer. Maybe that's be a part of a dedicated prayer team that meets regularly for the Randolphs. Whatever it is, you're gonna, there's going to be sign-ups so you can put in ink. There's going to be a chance for the real reality, the actual way things are, to be right in front of your face and beckon you in, invite you in. Because everything has changed. So I encourage you, bring whoever you can next week. Um, it's, there, there won't really be a message. There will be some interviews with our, our missionaries. There will be some singing, some praying, some eating. Hopefully some fun and laughter. I'm a big fan of those things. We're going to be living out in our church community the call of God who has broken in, who has changed everything. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we know that, that you've broken in. That you've shown up. That you've revealed the real world to us. We believe, God, that your Holy Spirit is in our midst, empowering us and changing lives. We saw your Holy Spirit heal last year. We anticipate new healings, new liberations this year. We pray that we will live in the new world, in the real world. And not in the one that we're used to. You have been so good to us, Lord. Make us your partners in mission. In Jesus' name, amen.